This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yo, what's up, guys? You like our podcast? You want to make your own? You have all the power, all the resources you need to make your own podcast. That's right. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you a rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. And here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish video podcasts to Spotify, which is super important. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. That's right. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That is anchor.fm to get started. It's what we use. We get a little kickback from it, and we appreciate it. So if you guys want your own podcast, go to Anchor. Dot .fm to get started. Peace. Hello and welcome to Anatomy of Family. I'm your host Melanie Studley. What's up guys? My name is Seth Studley. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and today this interview is freaking so much fun. We interviewed Dr. <laughs> Tina Payne Bryson, multiple New York Times bestsellers list, and we talked about two books in particular, The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and, chi- and Resilience in Your Child. Number two, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. You guys, she is fun. She is trippy. She tells it like it is, <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun, and you are going to love it. Enjoy. All right. It's finally happened, and we are here with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, multiple New York Times bestsellers, amazing person, and we are so thankful and glad to see you. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you, and gosh, we limitless things we could talk about, so <laughs> let's just go for it. Okay, yeah, I want to talk, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up with, with Melanie. I think Melanie turned me on to your work, yeah. and I'm going to kind of boot it over there to you just for a minute and tell yes. me your experience with, with Tina's work and how that's helped you grow as a mother, as a parent. Right. Well, what's funny is I was trying to like find all the books that I've read that you've written, and I'm like, oh, they're all in my Audible account. <laughs> so I'm like, I have no physical books anymore, but I have No Drama Discipline, The Power of Showing Up, The Whole Bane Trial, The Yes Brain. And then had I had little ones right now, I would be reading The Bottom Line for Baby. Uh, but I want you to talk about all of the books that you've written and just go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, just I, I wanted to focus right. on two. Yeah. On two in we particular. Yeah. But I just love your work. I'm so thankful for you in the world and how you write. I think you're an amazing writer. You were telling us before we started, you've got three boys, which is crazy yeah. town. So tell us all about yourself. We'll dive into your books, but just sort of give us a breakdown of who you are and what you do. You know what? I feel like I'm just like a boring mom wife person, but I've done some pretty great things professionally that I'm really proud of too. You know, I've written these books. I never meant to be an author. That was never my plan. I was going to be a high school English teacher because I loved teaching. And then um, when we had our first baby, we had moved back to California. I'm from California. We had moved here. My husband's an English professor. So he got a job here. 
Um, I was thrilled to be close to family. And my plan was to be a stay-at-home mom. That's what I always wanted to do from the time I was like five. And, but we couldn't afford for me to do that living in California on an English professor's salary. So my husband was like, Hey, you got to go to work. And I was like, but that's not part of the plan. (laughs) And he's like, you have to change your plan. So I said, okay, look, if I'm going to work, I need to, and at this point I had a master's in social work. I was like, if I'm going to work, I'm going to be a professor because then I can be like my kid's schedule. So I have to get a PhD really fast. So you're just going to have to wait a minute. So I got a PhD as fast as I could, having also continued to keep having babies while I was working on the PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that process, I met Dan Siegel. I was learning about the brain and about the nervous system and about the power of relationships. And the more I was learning, I was like, wait a minute, parents and teachers need to know this. And what's super cool is this field of expertise that I have, um, that I learned a lot from Dan Siegel from interpersonal neurobiology. And I know you all have had Dan on the show before looks at how the brain and the mind and our relationships all interact to shape who we are. So yeah, we can talk about kids, but they're really applicable actually to all of our relationships. And as I was learning this, it was such a game changer in terms of how I was thinking about my kids' behavior, how I was thinking about my job and role as a parent completely differently. And then I just was like, this is my life's mission is to share this with other parents. So Mm. I'm a mom to three boys who are 21, 18, and 14, um, still parenting. Um, I've been married 27 years because I got married when I was 22. And just so you don't have to do the math, I'm 49. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm in a really weird time of life right now. Like I'm getting invited less to weddings and baby showers and more to like funerals and my friends baby shower my friends children's weddings right. and baby it's like a weird and like my second one just graduated from high school my baby just started high school so I'm like transitioning into new things and what that means to be four years away from an empty nest and what does that mean for my marriage like mm-hmm, there's just right. kind of like the best thing though is if you are a curious person is that like no matter what crap is happening or what transitions happening you're like well that's interesting you know and you just sort of <laughs> observe it and figure it out and become fascinated by the things that are hard. Right. I, I love that. I love that. That makes me think of, I think it was Siegel's work or, or maybe both of you guys work. I, uh, response flexibility and then like being, uh, open and having grit and a growth mindset. And right. like, I know the times that we've approached it that way in our marriage, I think we're like that anyway. Right. We can face really just weird, goofy stuff. Like what is going on? But then face it, not like, oh, crap, the bottom's falling out mm-hmm. or this is the worst thing ever. It's like, oh, this is hard, but let's move through it. Let's be curious and open to right. it. And we fare Our so mindset better. is that we're going to mm-hmm. succeed, even though it will be hard. And so that I think that's what is it? Caroline, Carolyn Dweck yeah. and Angela Duckworth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Carol Dweck. But anyway, I, how fast is getting a Ph.D. fast? How, how fast can you do that? <laughs> um, I did it in about five years, which is. Yeah. I think pretty, I mean, four years is kind of the fastest you can do it unless, I don't know, online programs, maybe you can do it faster, but this was like an in-person thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started the program when my oldest was 18 months and I had two more babies by the time I graduated. So that's pretty fast. And we have pictures of me, you know, which is funny because all my work is about being present. Um, but I have pictures of me at the zoo, at the LA zoo with my kids and my husband's like holding the kid up to see the element. And I'm like reading a paragraph of a journal article because I could get it in. right. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so, you know, I didn't sleep a lot during those years because I wanted to really be present with my kids. And so right. I would study between things. And my husband taught me the art of half-assing because I'm, I'm definitely a 
like do your best like i'm a total you know type a, a, a kind of a full person. <laughs> you're a full <laughs> yeah. so i had to learn how to do that i had mm-hmm. to learn how to do that as a student which um was probably good preparation for me because even though i was the kind of student that you know took all the honors classes and sat in the front row and had like color-coded calendars i have three boys who have zero skill around any of that kind of stuff and so i I think just having a little experience with that made me be able to tolerate the oh, yeah. disaster of my children's um, motivation related to organization. Yeah. Girl, same. What, yeah, big time, same. <laughs> one, one thing I really love about your work is, so I, um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist too, right? So a master's of science, which are the heavy research component. And I always loved just getting into the research and finding this article that supports this and then negates that and just go and go and go really deep into it. So what I love about your books is the practical point of it, but then the real science, like here's the empirical based research that really works. Study show time after time after time, this is the thing, right? So I, I really wanted to dive into, uh, so I emailed you before, I was like, let's talk about these two books, please. So if you guys don't know, um, Tina uh, co-wrote uh, The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. And you talk about four fundamentals. Is it okay if we dive into the four fundamentals yeah. of that? And just for our listeners, uh, the four fundamentals start out with balance, resilience, insight, and empathy. So if we could just spend a couple minutes on each one, let's start out with balance. The balance and the yes brain, what does that mean? Yeah, so my the only way I ever remember the four pillars is because it spells brie, and so I just think of cheese, and Ooh. that helps me remember. <laughs> Dan is an acronym addict, and so like we try to like, you know, we, we try to help people remember, like in The Power of Showing Up, we talk about the four S's mm-hmm. are the most important thing you could ever do for your kids. Etc. So the yes brain, first of all, a yes brain is a brain that is receptive, open, says yes to the world, says yes to challenges, um, and is balanced, resilient, insightful, and empathetic. A no brain, on the other hand, we can think about the brain as either in, a, in this yes brain state, in this receptive state, or the brain, and when I say brain, I should just clarify, I mean the nervous system. So the brain is the organ in our skull, but it's part of our whole nervous system, our whole body, our brain is embodied. Um, so a no brain is one that is reactive. So we can either be receptive where we're curious, we say yes, to all these things, or we're reactive where we're stubborn, shut down, unwilling to try new things, super anxious, um, really in these reactive states. So when what's, what's great about this is that we really can help our children develop yes brains in the moment, but then over time, the kinds of repeated experiences they have form the kind of brain that they become, right? The kind of person that they become. So the first one is balance and it's done on purpose, not just because it spelled out cheese for us, but because <laughs> balance is crucial. If we, And let me just define what we mean by balance here is really, yes, a balanced life, but more than that, really having emotional regulation. And when I say emotional regulation, it's not just emotion. It's actually, I'm using like terms that everybody uses, But regulation is not just about feelings and emotions. It's really being able to regulate your physiology as well. And our relationships play such an important role in that, um, Mm -hmm. which is why you can't really say like, hey, make my kid more resilient. There's a relational process that is what allows that to happen. So we can never take things out out, out of the context of relationship. So emotional regulation, physiological regulation, 
the ability to stay in your, what Dan Siegel calls window of tolerance, what you can handle, um, such a beautiful phrase that he created. Um, and really to, you know, resilience is really kind of the next step. So when we're balanced, we can handle difficult things. We can, you know, we stay in our window of tolerance. We handle ourselves well, even when things get hard. And then resilience is really the ability to kind of expand what we can tolerate so that we can handle more. And I think a big piece, and this is connected to what we write about in the power of showing up related to resilience, is that the way we get, the way we learn resilience, and it's absolutely a teachable skill, the way we learn how to be resilient is to practice walking through difficult things Mm -hmm. with enough support. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such an important concept because I think our culture overemphasizes the idea of self-regulation or self-soothing. I mean, really, how much of the time, even as adults, do we self-soothe totally in a vacuum? No, we like call our people. We hug our spouse. We call our moms. We, you know, we self-soothing is such a ridiculous sort of thing that we put in this, like, this is what kids are supposed to do. The way we become, have the ability to self-regulate to self-soothe and to be resilient is by having lots and lots of experiences of walking through difficult things where people showed up for us. Mm. And when we have someone else who helps us soothe to become balanced or regulated, um, then over time, it's, it's like, like if I lift a weight and I do reps, I, each of those reps builds that muscle. Every time my nervous system has an experience where I'm falling apart, I'm dysregulated, I'm a mess. And somebody shows up for me and helps me move back into a resilient, regulated state. My brain then gets those reps for how to do it for themselves. So yes, mm-hmm. I become someone who can self-regulate, mm-hmm. but it's always in the context of those relational practices. So one other thing I want to say about resilience is that I think we, you know, as a society, the, I, the ideal seen by most parents right now, based on research, is what I would call total overparenting. Mm. Parents think that do we like that we have to or should be everything for our children, take care of everything for our children. And if we're not doing that, we're failing. And that's actually the opposite of the messaging we want to be giving. Because when we do everything for our children and we are everything to our children and we prevent them from dealing with difficult things or we distract them when they're dealing with difficult things or we fix everything for them that actually creates fragility instead Mm -hmm. of resilience. So Mm -hmm. the difference between walking through adversity and it leading to resilience instead of fragility is someone showing up and instead of taking care of it to say, that's really hard. I'm right here with you. So I'll give you just a really quick example. Um, So one one, um, evening, my son, my youngest, who was probably eight at the time, was really upset because his bigger brothers were staying up later. They had some friends over. And the boys are each three years apart. So they were like 11 and 14. They were, you know, preteen, teen, and he was little still. And so they were, had friends over and he was furious that they got to stay up. And I was militant about bedtime. And so I was like, it's time to sleep. So I'm in bed with him, snuggled up. I've got the pile of books and he is like a fish out of water. He's thrashing in the bed because he's so mad, right? He's totally no brain, right? He's mm-hmm. like totally dysregulated, reactive. Now, what I want to do in that moment is say, okay, if you're going to do that, then we're not going to read tonight. Mm -hmm. So throw out a threat, which actually does zero to build skills or to make things like, it's just going to keep being a lose-lose for both of us. So 
that's the no drama discipline book is to think about all of that differently. So in that moment, my most important job, I guess, let me say this way in the past, like in my early experiences as a parent in those moments, I would have spent so much attentional and emotional and cognitive energy trying to figure out what do I do? How do I fix this? How do I get out of this? How do I get him to go to sleep? And I've learned through the research and practice that my only job in that moment is to show up with my presence. So mm. what I can say in that moment is I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change my boundary. I don't have to say anything in particular. All I have to do is to say, it really is hard to feel like things are unfair. It's really disappointing when you have to go to bed and people, other people stay up. That's really hard, isn't it? So I just say something empathetic. I'm connecting with him. And then I just say to him, either with my words or with my, um, with the experience he has with me, I'm right here with you. Mm -hmm. So then when he, when we walk through that, then eventually he's like, he has the experience of, okay, that sucked to feel that way. But now I know that my mom can handle my big feelings. Mm -hmm. And she kind of communicated that she trusts that I can handle my big feelings and he gets out of it. And then he's like, I can handle disappointment. I can handle Mm -hmm. when things are unfair. And that's how we build resilience. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that so much. And it it seemed like you got into the four S's of, uh, let me see my notes here, of the power Safe. of showing up, right? Safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And I recently, when I say recently, it's like a year and a half ago, two years ago, because all books are a blur for me. I uh, <laughs> was um, reading uh, Amir Levine's uh, attached attachment book, right? Talking about attachment styles. And I've had so many clients in the past, we talk about attachment, secure, um, avoidance, or I can't remember the other two or three, but what you're talking about is building a secure attachment for your kids, right? But so many clients of mine, these are adult clients, don't have that secure attachment, and then they find themselves in this stressful uh, situation with their kid, and they're just like, ah, they 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 lose their they crap. lose their stuff, right? And then in turn, of course, we're modeling and mirror neurons and all this stuff for our kids. Mm-hmm. But can you speak a little bit, like, if parents don't have their stuff together, and I say don't have their stuff together, I'm I mean like they're you know holding jobs, they're putting their kids to bed, but they're still got some overwhelming anxiety stuff going on, and they can't manage both um, both big feelings uh, two people are having. Give us some tips and tricks on, uh, well, maybe what parents should read or how we should react to that to best support our kids. Yeah. Let me give the punchline of the power of showing up and why Dan and I wrote this book. Over 50 years of cross-cultural research Mm -hmm. has shown, longitudinal cross-cultural research has shown that the single best predictor for how well our kids turn out on everything we measure them on is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. Mm -hmm. Now I want to be just really clear what I'm talking about. It has nothing to do with attachment parenting, attachment parenting about like a list of behaviors you should do to help your baby bond with you. You can do those or not do those. Attachment's not about a checklist of behaviors. You can do all those things and have a kid who is or isn't securely attached to you. If you do none of those things, that doesn't mean your kid won't be. So that's a totally separate thing. I wish it were named something different. I'm talking about, body of literature, under developmental psychology, et cetera. Okay, so secure attachment. Secure attachment is at its fundamental that in moments of distress, somebody gets close to you, connects with you, and regulates your physiology and your emotions. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what that could mean for a mammal is you're a bear cub in the forest, you see a predator, or you get hurt, or you hear a scary noise, you run to your parent bear, Your parent bear helps you feel connected and protected. Like I've got you. 
Okay, so when they see the parent bear protecting them and making sure they're okay, their heart rate slows back down, their muscles go back into a more relaxed posture, um, they don't feel the fear. So mm-hmm. this is really kind of the fundamental of what attachment is. Now, what I love about the attachment research is it is full of hope. So one of the big things we say in this book is that history is not destiny. And I mean Mm -hmm. that in two ways. One is the best predictor for how well we're able to provide this most important thing we can do for our kids, secure attachment, is not based on whether or not we had it with our own caregivers. Thank God, Mm because only about 55 to 65% of us had a secure attachment with one of our parents. Rather, we had a more insecure pattern of attachment where they didn't show up for us. They minimized our needs and emotions. Mm -hmm. They, you know, so they, we were sort of ignored emotionally, like an emotional desert, or we had a parent who was really unpredictable and chaotic emotionally that we couldn't really count on to regulate us. Mm -hmm. Um, Or worse, we had a parent who, instead of being the source of safety and connection for us was the source of our terror. And so that leaves us in a biological paradox where you have one circuit that says, go to your attachment figure to be safe. And then you have another circuit that says, get the hell away from what's dangerous. And so it actually creates disorganization. The brain is actually called disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that regardless of how we were parented, the best predictor for how well we're able to do this is not whether or not we had it, but whether or not we've reflected on it, made sense of it, said, gosh, my parents didn't show up for me in these ways. Here's what I needed. And here's how I've had to learn. And here's how I'm getting those needs met elsewhere. The other way that I mean that is that no matter how we've parented up until this moment in time does not mean we have to continue to parent that way. And for Mm -hmm. some reason in our marriages, in our role as parents, we often continue to do the same non-productive things over and over and over. And that when you go, okay, well, Tina and Dan were talking about the four S's, helping our kids feel safe and seen and soothed and secure. And here's what that looks like. I'm going to start doing that today. And when I keep practicing it, it's going to become automatic and easy for me. It's going to be my Mm go-to. I think that we can always change. And no matter if you're listening to this and you have adult children, it is never too late to make a change Mm -hmm. in that relationship. So that's what I love about this. Now, in terms of your actual question that I totally went on a long (laughs) journey away from. No, this is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. What do we do? So, and that's why I love the four S's. They are my North star. There are so many moments as a clinician, as a wife, as a mom, as a best friend, um, or even my relationship with myself where I'm like, what do I do? What do I say? What's the next best thing? I don't know. But the answer is always the four S's. Anytime I can respond in a way that helps my child in this example, feel safe, where I'm like, I've got you. You don't have to worry about your safety. I'm here for you. Um, or the moments that I flip my lid and I act like a crazy person and yell at you, I'm going to come make a repair. So in this moment, you're like, I'm not so sure that was really unpredictable. She acted in a way she normally doesn't. And I don't feel very safe. I I don't mean like I'm going to hurt them, but like Mm -hmm. anytime anything is unpredictable, the brain detects that as a threat. So if I become unpredictable, I scream and yell, throw the dice across the room. My family now refers to as the Yahtzee incident. When we have those moments, you're losing. We get it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Then we go make the repair. So our kid might go, gosh, you know, that doesn't feel very good. Relationships are kind of messy, but I know she's going to come make it right. So I help my kid feel safe by apologizing or not getting reactive and and stopping myself before I get there. Seeing, I go to my kid and I go, I can see you're really, really angry with me right now. Or you don't, you don't feel like getting out of the bathtub. I know you really don't want bath time to be over. That's hard, isn't it? Right. And soothed and say, 
I'm right here with you while you're feeling sad about getting out of the tub as I'm lifting them out, still holding the boundary to keep things safe. Mm -hmm. And then over time, when we show up for our kids that way, and, and they have enough, not predict, not perfect, enough predictable experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, they develop that fourth S of secure attachment, which is basically where the brain wires to go, okay, I now know and trust based on all these experiences I've had that if I have a need, someone's going to see it and show up for me. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing about that is then they learn how to show up for themselves and keep mm-hmm. themselves safe and see and understand themselves, soothe themselves, et cetera, like I mentioned. So for me, what do we do? What do we do as parents? We give our kids the four S's, whatever that looks like in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you heard, I'm sure you have, but the, uh, the, one of the modalities in, in family and uh, in individual therapy, uh, reparenting like a reparenting exercise. Like I've done that with clients and this is before I found out about the the four S's and I'm just thinking about it and like, oh, we went through all of these and one of my favorite things about reparenting is no one else in the world knows what better that the eight-year-old me, whatever injury or, you know, whatever happened. I, you know, I'm 43. The 43-year-old me knows what best I wish would have happened when I was eight, right? So going through all these things, it's a really phenomenal exercise that I've been able to do with clients and they just come out of it like, oh, mm-hmm. that was not not completely healed, but really worked on. There's still work to do. And the four S's just made me right. really think of that. Well, uh, and even if okay. you thought of it in that way, like it, you're, you are sort of highlighting for yourself what mm-hmm. you needed that you then can impart for your kid. You go, oh, right. I wish that I had felt this. I can totally. give that to my kid. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say something though? Yeah, something I mean, just you and I are totally on the same page, Melanie. I think, you know, the thing is, is that in those moments when we are not the parent we want to be, when we're not the spouse we want to be, right? Um, I throw the dice across the room and scream at my kids or um, I act really immature or I get really reactive and defensive and I'm not listening, all of these things. Instead of going down the shame spiral, which Mm -hmm. we so easily can do, um, particularly if we had um, an insecure pattern of attachment with our own parents, is that we're so hard on ourselves. But what I really invite all of us to do is actually when we go into these shame spirals and we're so hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up, um, that actually leaves us more vulnerable to more no-brain moments, more reactive Mm -hmm. moments, more flipping our lid moments. What we can do instead is to move into curiosity and to say, what is it that got in the way for me to be the parent I wanted to be? What is it I need right now? And that's a big part of reparenting too, is that a lot of us didn't have parents who helped us make sense of our experiences, who helped us get clear on what it is we needed. So so two ways I really try to cultivate that in my life. One is when I mess up as a parent, when I mess up as a wife, I really try to go, okay, what is it that I need? And sometimes the answer to that is I haven't peed by myself in three years <laughs> and my blood sugar is low and I've had too much time with you people. And you know, the dog just barfed and that's why I'm yeah. reactive. And that makes sense. Like I don't need to call a therapist because right. my tank mm-hmm. is too low. Right. Or I might go, you know what? Every time my kid rejects me, I have a total fear response or I have a total shame response. And what is that about for me? I want to be curious about unpacking and that's about reparenting. And it's also about creating that coherent narrative that allows us to make sense of it so that we can move back into that secure attachment Mm -hmm. parenting. The other way I really try. So I try to really move into curiosity, ask what is it I needed right right now? And then really try to be gentle with that part of myself. Like, yeah, of course you, you are having a hard time regulating yourself. You're not getting what you need. Right. So it's just kind of that gentleness. The other way I really try to cultivate it, 
um, is through my kids. So when my, like, I'll give an example, my, my son, when he was probably about 12 or so, he was like, oh, and he was just walking around, like making noises and kind of like being rough with his body. And I said, Hey, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. I'm just mad. And I don't even know why I'm mad, but I'm just, oh, and I said, you know, the feelings that we have in our bodies and in our emotions are actually really helpful information sometimes. I mean, sometimes we don't know, but other times those feelings that you're having are telling you something isn't working for you right now. You need something else. So be curious, go sit for a minute, close your eyes, tune in and say, what is it I need right now? And so he went and did it. And a minute or two later, he came back. He's like, I don't know what that was about, but I'm fine now. So he didn't really go into anywhere deep, but I think Mm -hmm. asking our kids those questions like, what is it you need right now? And particularly for our girls who um, are often still in our culture taught to be over accommodating and meet everybody else's needs. I think, and I guess I should say, especially for our boys too, who are not given opportunities to have the kinds of reflection and, and attention to their inner life and their mm-hmm. emotions. So I guess for all of them, but really to, in those ways to say, your emotions and your body are communicating something important. What is it you need right now? And then when our kids are having tantrums in those moments is to say, oh, you're having such a hard time. What is it you need? How can I help? And when Mm -hmm. we offer that kind of connection, they can get regulated again. And then that's actually a more effective time to address any behavior that needs to be addressed as well. But when we do that with our kids, we start practicing how to do it better for ourselves as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And it makes me think of, we recently traveled the other, it was like a two a week or two ago. And it's really interesting now, you know, once you gain this insight about the way that our relational, like the way we, we handle relationships really does impact the way that children grow up and how we grew up and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And then you go to somewhere like an airport and get on an airplane with a two and a half year old who's losing their mind. And like, we literally watched this dad like, Whole, and I'm not shaming this guy at all. We've been we've traveled with kids a bazillion times, but this yeah. the kid was like losing his absolute mind, and the dad kept squeezing him harder and telling him, "Stop crying, stop crying." Mm. And I remember thinking, like, imagine if that was me as an adult in a situation that scared the shit out of me, and someone is just going, "Stop crying, stop crying," <laughs> you know, like I would get even more terrified right. for yeah. sure. And so there are times when I. If I just swap places mentally with my kid and I think, how would I feel in this moment? Mm-hmm. Would I want someone to tell me you can't cry or you shouldn't feel that way? Of course not. That mm-hmm. would never change how I felt. Right. And so there are the, those moments of insight that I think we can learn from switching places with uh, a kid that's dysregulated and like, what would we want? And that kind of thing. Then the other thing that I think is so important for parents to understand, even when it comes to a marriage relationship, obviously a parent-child relationship, is that doing a new thing or doing, I guess, the right thing feels really awkward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Sometimes it feels wrong. Sometimes it feels like yep. this is not going to work. Like when I, I can imagine if your kid is freaking out about bath time wanting to end and you say, well, no, it's eight o'clock and it has to end now. Like that's what you're wanting. You're wanting to like pound these rules in. And then you go, oh, no, I know. They need to see feel seen. Mm-hmm. Like a, a bunch of people are like, well, you're going to have the most spoiled kids ever. So how do you address like that idea of, well, this will spoil them somehow? Um, I, as you might imagine, I get that question quite a bit. Yes. Um, and first of all, I am all about what works, right? Something has to be effective or, or there has to be a reason to do it or why we do it, right? So the first thing is, is that there is so much fear, parental fear that gets in the way of parents even being open to these ideas, mm-hmm. right? So um, here's, here's my really quick answer to that. 
twofold. One is the one I already said, which is when kids have repeated experiences of being helped to move back to regulation, that actually gives their brain the practice so that they can do it for themselves. So it's Mm -hmm. actually not making them more fragile or more indulged. It's making them more resilient and have greater capacity. But here's the other thing. And I wrote my dissertation on this. There's, There's decades and decades and decades of research on this. There are two sort of dimensions that are the most research dimensions of parenting. One is around um, the sort of nurture dimension. So this is where we're like, oh, it's so hard for you. And we, you know, that practicing that scene. And so that's like the nurture dimension. So you can be really high on that or really low on that or whatever. And then there's a totally separate dimension that's more about boundaries and expectations and Um, It's actually called the control dimension. I don't Mm. love that term because if you've ever tried to make a kid go to the bathroom, fall asleep or eat, you know, you're truly not in control of any other (laughs) It just doesn't work, but it really is the um, structure or expectations, boundaries dimension. Now, these are two separate dimensions and parents make this mistake. And this, there's tons of research to back up what I'm saying. Um, Parents think they either have to be strict and firm and harsh and good disciplinarians or they have to be warm, fuzzy connectors. Mm. And the truth is those absolutely should go together. They're not one spectrum. They're not mm. opposite ends. The research is really clear. We should be high on nurture and seeing and connection and really high on boundaries, expectations. So when I say to parents, you know, your kid's splashing you and saying, I'm not getting out of the bathtub and yelling at you. When I say you're so mad about getting out of the bathtub, I am not going to be a permissive parent because I'm absolutely going to address that behavior. And I'm going to also remember what I wrote about in No Drama Discipline, which is the whole point and purpose of discipline is to teach kids skills so that they have the capacity to become self-disciplined over time. And actually, a lot of what we do in the name of discipline, throwing threats, throwing punishments at them, yelling at them, all of these things are actually counterproductive. It makes Mm -hmm. it less likely kids will learn. So in those moments, when I am, when I say to my kid, you're so mad, bath time is over and you really don't want to get out. Is that right? I'm actually being really strategic about helping downregulate his reactivity to move him into a space where he can be more ready to learn. When I say, you know what, when mom, when mom asks you, I really, really would like some cooperation or, you know, it's time you, we made an agreement, right? So when I address the behavior, it's going to be so much more effective if he's not in a reactive state, we're either receptive, ready to learn. So we can be effective disciplinarians. And by that, I mean, teachers, or we're in a reactive state and we're going to get nowhere in terms Mm -hmm. of discipline. So in the name of discipline, I'm going to start with connection because it's more effective. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And yeah. I think of, uh, it's weird when you were saying that I always, this pops into my head every once in a while. And I always think, why isn't this how we talk about uh, all of this stuff, like emotional regulation and parenting and all of that? Because, you know, there's that thing that takes 10,000 hours to become a master at whatever craft, mm-hmm. right? So as parents, we... <laughs> We tend to teach for about like, I don't know, an hour a week, and then we yell the rest of the week. How do we ever think that our child will be able to master their own inner world if we aren't modeling that behavior for them every day? And when I say modeling, like I really mean like if something happens to me, like the plane is laid and I'm stuck in the airport and I lose my cool and I start yelling at people, I am modeling an out of balance behavior for my kids. And then they are sucking all of that in going, mm-hmm. oh, that's what you do when stuff gets hard. You just yell at everyone at the desk, right? right? You, you just like plow your way freak out stuff. and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we like, right. oh, go ahead. What were you gonna say? 
Well, just, it's, I mean, I had the same airport experience last week. Um, basically, you know, it's everywhere right. and I've been there too. So again, no judgment, right. but you know, the dad who's grabbing his kid's body, squeezing, going, calm down. Right. You know, you're like, that's not right. going to work. She doesn't know how, or she would have, cause she doesn't like the way that's yep. happening for her. That's scary. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, so much of the time, and we have to know like the way there are two main ways kids learn the most from having it modeled for them mm-hmm. and practicing it themselves. So that's why when it comes to discipline, we want to give them practice doing the right thing. That's why I feel like timeouts, like time, I'm a big fan for timeouts for parents, but I don't think they do that much in terms of ki- there, there, there are many problems with them. Kids don't sit and go reflect right. and think about their yeah. behavior. Right. They're thinking about how stupid you are and mean you are to put them there because it was their brother's fault in the first place. But I, I'd much rather my kid do something more active to say, okay, go out of the room. And let's have a do-over and come back in. And can you say that again to me in a more respectful tone of voice? I want them to practice doing it the right way, right? Like mm-hmm. right. practice. Um, and, and I think we have to model those moments. And then when we don't, we make the repair. And we say to our kids, I really wish I had handled that differently. You know, right. I think that's what we do. But, and that's why it requires for us to keep doing the ongoing work ourselves. Right. But, you know, one other thing I'll say about all of this is that if we're watching for it, and it's actually not that hard once you go, oh, and that is that behavior is communication. So mm. when you think about your kids are telling you the whole list of all the things that they need to still be taught and the skills they don't yet have. So really, if I like when I'm doing a parenting workshop, one of the things I'll ask parents to do is make a list Then I have them title the list discipline problems. And I write, have them write down the three top things that drive them the most crazy, worry them the most, cause the most conflict and, and problem in the house. List those three things like, you know, sibling conflict, you know, n- not following instructions and not handling anger well or hot temper or whatever. Then I ask them to cross out the title of the list and rename the list skills my child hasn't yet built. And it's the Ah, same things, right? It's Mm -hmm. a mindset so that your kids are telling you, like when my kid gets mad at his brother and goes and slaps his brother and leaves a handprint on his back in that moment, you know, I, I, it's time to address the perpetrator. It's a discipline moment. It's not okay to hit, but I look at my kid and he is so reactive. He's not going to hear a word I say, right? So in the name of discipline, the first thing I'm going to do is calm him down through connection. Cause that works the best. So, mm-hmm. Buddy, you're so angry. What happened? Come here. And I comfort him just like you were physically hurt. He's emotionally in distress. I comfort him, take some breaths. And then I go, Hey, you really hurt your brother. What happened there? And I, we have the conversation, right? And this, this can start happening when kids are four and five before that you keep it really simple. You address the feeling, you address the behavior and you move on. Mm-hmm. But after that, we can start having conversation and then I can say, how can you go make it right with your brother? And what can you do differently next time, et cetera. But then after that moment, I go, okay, he told me something. He basically was like, Hey mom, I need skill building and regulating my body when I'm angry. Okay. So in my mind, I'm like, skill to be built. So those are, then I'm going to be more intentional about modeling that better and giving him some strategies he can use the next time. Like, Oh, I'm so angry. What can I do with my body? Right. So the behavior basically tells us I don't have these skills yet. And that's Mm -hmm. our job as disciplinarians is to build those skills so that we, and I'll just say this last thing about this. If we're effective disciplinarians, we're actually disciplining less and less over time. That's why it's called no drama discipline because, Mm -hmm. because I'm building my kids skills so that they have the capacity to do it for themselves. So I don't even have to address the behavior. 
Mm, yeah, I love that. It's like a startup. Like at first, you know, <laughs> if you're starting anything, okay, there's a ton of work. I'm working 18 hour days, all this stuff. But then as hustle. you have success <laughs> and you, you build like success stack upon success stack, then you are talking about this issue less with your mm-hmm. kid. Like, oh, they, they know what to do. When somebody, you know, loses right. a video game or something and the controller goes flying, they're like, oh, no, that's not what we do. This is what we do instead. Well, and I think that it, it helps to understand that the core meaning of discipline is not punishment. People think of discipline as punishment. It is not. I think it's something, disciple is like the premise yep. of the mm-hmm. word, is like the foundation yep. of the word discipline. And it's like to learn. Like I'm yep. learning these mm-hmm. things. And so I love the way you put that because like the more we discipline, that does not mean punish, the more we teach our children to manage these things. And one of the things that I found deeply helpful in my own, and I think it, I'm actually, I'm positive it came from one of your books, um, was that I began to process verbally what I was feeling mm-hmm. so my kids could hear my inner dissonance so that yep. they understood mom deals with that too. Like I would be like, oh man, I'm so frustrated that our flight is delayed, but you know what? No big deal. I can make the best of it. So I would mm-hmm. voice what I was upset about, yep. show them that I could handle it, and then tell them how I was going to handle mm. it and it. and sort of even place my intention. Like, I'm going to have the best time in this three-hour delay that I can have. Right? So here's a perfect example of where that... So Melanie, uh, a couple of months ago, cut her finger wide open <laughs> with a chainsaw, right? Oh, and she was in the like ER, really <laughs> and this was during COVID, so I couldn't go back or anything. It was terrible. And she was just meditating on like, okay, what is it? I, um, I'm suffering, but I don't have to oh like i will have pain but i don't need to suffer and the kids saw me like they right. watched i they actually uh-huh. saw me cut mm-hmm. my hand i mean it was really gnarly but but at, but you talked about that mm-hmm. with our kids right yeah. and then what a cup this is like a couple of weeks ago i think one of our kids got hurt on a skateboard <clears throat> or something and like really just cr- oh, yeah. crushed Tough. his knee yeah. or something and he was like mom i hurt my knee but it was really pain but i was focusing on i don't have to suffer yeah and like had you not he, yeah. verbalized that and reframed it in he that used way the exact same thing that mm-hmm. he heard me say because it was a big deal like my hand was bleeding everywhere i had to go to the er i got stitches yeah. i mean it was a big deal and uh and but the whole time i never cried i never got angry i never shouted at anybody i never did anything crazy and but it was very much intentional but again i verbally processed that to my kids i said man yeah oh, this is scary. It's my right hand. That's going to be frustrating. I'm not going to be able to write. It's going to make stuff challenging, but you know what? I'm okay. I can figure it out, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like just putting that. And so what was cute is that when our kid fell on his skateboard, he like fell on a hill and scratched himself up a bunch. But my mom, he was with my mom and he called me on the phone and he was so excited. He's like, (laughs) mom, you won't believe it. I fell really bad, but I told myself I can have pain and not suffer. And I was like, yes, like mom win, you know, I think it's that idea, though, that so many times we think that this like us processing something challenging just should stay in our heads and our Mm -hmm. kids shouldn't see it. And I think it's the complete. I mean, of course, there are things that aren't appropriate for kids to know and hear about or whatever. So, of course, ages and stages. But I realized, I'm like, if we're not saying these things to our kids, they think we know how to do everything. Mm -hmm. Just like I thought when I was growing up, a mom knows how to do it. Mom doesn't struggle. Mom never says anything. So she must just be way better at it than I am, you know? And so I think that that for me is, uh, was a big takeaway, a big powerful lesson to, to like voice it and get it out there. Externalizing that internal process. And one of the ways we talk about that is in the whole brain child in name it to tame it. And that when we actually name and and we tell the story of what's happening and how we're going to do things, Mm -hmm. it really does empower our, it's, it's twofold. One is it really helps them process what's happening in a, in a better way. But the second thing is they also then learn that you know, we don't have to be victim to our emotions and our circumstances. We have a voice and we can, Mm -hmm. you know, we can decide how we're going to handle it. And 
that when we are having a hard time, we can share our stories with each other. Like I remember my, you know, we always did that. Like even when my kids were six, eight months, you know, they'd hit their head and we would tell the story like, oh, you were sitting and you fell over and bang, you hit your head and it hurts so much. Like we would do that. And, um, and so like my kids, when they were five would come to me and be like, mom, I keep thinking about, you know, when I hit my toe or my, I had one of my, my kids six was like, I saw part of a Scooby-Doo episode at my cousin's house and I keep thinking about it. We need to tell the story. Like he knew yes. what strategy we could use, you know? And I was oh. like, okay. And I hadn't seen that episode, but if you've seen one Scooby-Doo, you know, it's yeah. old Mr. McGregor and not actually a ghost or whatever. So we could, <laughs> we could walk through the story. <laughs> yeah. The, the one thing I, I, for I feel like I have to say this, like with all our listeners, because I never want to be like, oh, I'm a marriage and family therapist. We have a show. Everything's good. Right. We're super right. vulnerable, like lead with vulnerability, like all Brene Brown stuff. And I really like you and your, your candor in that and saying, yeah, and I threw the dice across the thing. And I think that because a lot of people might listen to a show or read your books and go, oh, well, Tina knows exactly what to do. Or Seth and Melanie, they have a great marriage. No, that's not true. We're just normal people. So I want to give listeners um, hope around the parenting because I have blown it a million times with our kids and sometimes really go internalize that and feel shame. Go, oh my gosh, you have to re, you know, redo everything. What's wrong with you, Seth? Kind of thing. I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. Let me talk to our kid about that. And one thing that came up is when, because relationship is most important, when we go to repair uh, relationships, like say that I did yell at a kid, right? And I go to the kid and say, hey, dad's really sorry, you know, uh, and not like I'm not doing this to make myself feel better, but just like, hey, dad's secure. Things are cool. I just want to apologize. That isn't how I wanted to show up as a parent. And the kid just turns over. Or if he's older, he might say F you or something like that. Our kids don't say that. But are we still doing the right thing? Does that matter from a kid's perspective? Like, oh, dad messed up. He was rude. He was ugly. But he came back and apologized. Does that... Are you asking for a friend or what's going on here? No, but well... (laughs) Asking for a friend. No, I want to know because sometimes we're like, oh, great. I, man, really blew it on that one. And of course, if that happens like, you know, five times every day, there's something bigger going on. But I want to encourage parents out there like, yeah, okay, let's repair this and to give some encouragement and like, hey, keep on going. You are doing the right thing. You are modeling this. Does that matter to kids based on the research and one of the, well, does that, does that matter to kids? Should we do that? Even if it seems like it doesn't work. Even if they rebuff you, reject you, react Mm -hmm. back to you, it absolutely matters. And here's what I would say about that. The first thing is, if they don't respond well to our apology, it might be that they're still in a no brain reactive state. When we're in a no brain reactive state, we don't have, we can't access empathy. We can't access kind of reconnection. So it might just be that it needs a little bit of time. But the other thing I would say is that the way we make the repair matters. Now, let me just give, I mean, we could talk about that for three hours, but I'll just give one example. I have always wanted to teach my boys that they are responsible for their own behavior, no matter what anybody else does. So if I apologize this way, hey, I got really mad, um, you guys, and I'm really sorry that I threw the dice across the room and yelled at you. But if you guys had been listening to me and you had stopped Mm. fighting, that would not have happened. I'm totally blaming them. That's a shitty apology. And it doesn't make them feel like I'm really trying to connect. It sounds like I'm lecturing and blaming. So if our, if, if our, our, um, if the response is not met with connection and repair and feeling good again, 
again, it might not be that you're not doing it right. It might be that they're just not ready. They need a little mm-hmm. bit more time and you might need to go back again, but we really need to be thoughtful. So what I need to do is take full responsibility. And I need to say, guys, you were fighting. You didn't stop. I got really frustrated. So those are the facts, right? Mm-hmm. I got really frustrated and I didn't handle it well. I really wish I had done that differently. I should have taken a break and calmed myself down. And I should not have yelled at you or throw the dice across the room. Totally my bad. I'm so sorry. Um, can we make, can I make it right? Can we have a do-over? You know, would you like to start again? Whatever. So the way that we apologize matters a lot. And one other thing I'll say about this is that the research is, again, so hopeful in this is that we don't have to be perfect. We can mess up all the time. And in fact, it's good that we do. The research shows that falling apart, flipping our lids, making mistakes as parents can actually be good for our kids as long as we make the repair. And that's Mm -hmm. why it's so important, regardless of how our children respond to it. Because when we make the repair, again, I, I mentioned this sort of earlier, is that when we become unpredictable, like usually mom's patient, usually mom's calm, but then she just turned into a total psycho crazy person. Um, and that feels really uncomfortable and relationships feel messy right now. And I actually am holding a feeling of predictability because I know she's going to come make it right as soon as she's ready. And then our kids develop what we can think about as relational resilience, because then it's not like, oh, there's a conflict in the relationship, the relationship is over. They can learn to kind of widen their window of tolerance for the messiness and discomfort of conflict of relationships so that they know that the repair is coming. And and then not to mention what we're modeling for them in terms of Mm -hmm. making repairs and apologies themselves. Mm -hmm. So yes, absolutely, it matters. I love that. And I think another thing too in that is that often if I find myself in that situation with our kids where I have like flipped my lid or said something uncomfortable, whatever, get into a bad mood, I will always, um, I've learned this as a skill I've developed over time to be like, you know what? I am super mad. I really do love you a lot and Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be mean to you. And I'm, I'm sorry that I'm being that way. I'm going to calm down in a minute. Like I'll, I'll sort of give them a little bit of my mental process. And, but I loved what you said. They're like holding on to security or whatever. Is that the Mm -hmm. word you said? Yeah, there's a, there's there's yeah. holding on to like a predictability. Yeah, predictability. Because mm-hmm. the unpredictability is is actually activates our neuroception for danger and threat. Mm-hmm. Our brains hate unpredictability, which is why the pandemic was so hard for so many people. Is the unpredictability activates our threat response system, mm-hmm. so it makes us ha- be more reactive, and our nervous system's all worked up. So there's a there's sort of the background music of predictability coming when we consistently make repairs. Right. I love mm-hmm. that. And another thing I want to say too is that even in those like airplane examples where the dad is like, you know, death grip on the kid saying, don't cry. Um, there's a saying that I came up with uh, for our kids that I don't even remember where it came from, but I'll, hmm. I said, the tone you set is the tone you get, right? And I just think like I wanted to sort of sprinkle this on top for parents because I wish that I had heard that earlier in that way where if I come into a room and I'm, you know, guns blazing, I'm pissed mm-hmm. as hell that the kids' Legos are on the floor. How do you think they're going to respond? So right. I set the tone of being angry. My kids are not going to be like, oh, mom, I'm so sorry. I'll dutifully clean these up. They're going to be mad right back at me, right? So mm-hmm. the tone you set is the tone you get. So I think so much of parenting, again, it, it goes back to how much awareness we have of our own emotional regulation. And uh, like you said, like when your kids are showing these signs of um, dysregulation in different areas, maybe one kid hits the other one or whatever, that is an area of potential growth. That's like the way to sort of reframe that in our minds. And um, right. and sort of, I, I just think in general to remove anger and this desire to like 
punish our kids. I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking to myself at this point, but um, I don't know. It really is. It really is. If, if parents could just, if we could just hold the idea that every discipline moment is actually about teaching. Yeah. It could revolutionize everything and school in schools and everything too. Mm-hmm. What, you know, one thing I think that's really interesting as you talk, I love your, your, your saying there about the tone you set is the tone you get about three weeks ago. I posted on Instagram, some version of children mirror our states. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of, um, yes, absolutely kind of thing. But I also got a lot of people saying that's really shaming. I struggle with depression and you're making me feel really bad. Like mm-hmm. I got a lot of people responding in not positive ways, but here's the thing. That's just true. Yeah. Right. It's just true. And that's not to say that we can't ever be depressed or we can't ever be anxious. We are human beings. And if we never, if we only felt positive and regulated all the time, there would be something wrong with us. That's not healthy, right? Right. Having the full range of experiences where sometimes we're depressed and sometimes maybe even chronically struggling Mm -hmm. with serious Mm -hmm. mental health issues and anxiety and grief and all the things that we deal with, these are part of the health of the human experience. And it's Mm -hmm. healthy to feel that range of emotions. And our children will mirror those states because of mirror neurons, because of the important role we have in communicating safety and threat to protect our young, like all these things we have as a mammal. So that's not to shame parents for when we're not feeling cheerful and lovely. It's really to say that when our children, when, when we are feeling that, that we matter too, and that we need to really say, what is it I need right now? Because I have a responsibility, not just in the tone that I'm setting, but even to myself, because I matter too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important key is that, and, and, you know, Seth, you know, this from the work that we do as clinicians is that, you know, parents often are like, fix my kid. My kid mm-hmm. has these behavior problems. And a lot of the work we do at the center for the Con- for connection, this clinical practice that I, I run um, is so much about dyadic work and working with the parents because one hour rep with a therapist can only go so far, but if we're supporting the parents and being able to regulate themselves and help co-regulate their kids, we're going to have so much more success so much faster. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, it's really important. I, I, I do these like parenting groups um, that I run online. And um, one of the big things is like parents, they send in their questions and then I just answer them. And it's really, really fun. And um often parents are like, here's my kid's problem. What can I do to fix it? Mm -hmm. And so much of the time, the question I'm sending back is like, what, what role do you feel like you're playing in the contribution to what's going on there? And a lot of times we've never thought about that question as parents. And I have to pause and think about that. You know, I'm like, okay, so my kid is leaving his, my, my, older kid, I won't rat out which one, (laughs) you know, they're constantly leaving like food and drinks around that the dog can get into that. They're expecting some magical person to come clean up instead of themselves. You know, if that keeps happening, instead of me being like my kid's so lazy or, you know, whatever I have to go, okay, what role am I playing in that behavior continuing? What Mm -hmm. shift do I need to make? Um, And so I just think that's such an important part of reflective parenting and reflect being human beings who are asking curious questions too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I have family systems training, right? So I, I, I don't hate it when we get questions, but I, I want to dive in more. Like when we get a questions, right. you know, a, a mom like or a, a hundred husband questions says, attached to hey, one, yeah. this one thing about my kid. And I'm like, 
hold on, wait a minute. I need like a whole geneogram, you know, right, context right. behind that in order for me to answer the question yeah. effectively rather than like, well, I don't know, take a pill and you'll be fine kind of right. thing. I'm like, no, I can't give that kind of answer. So it's much more of a, a systemic process. And uh, yeah, we have to, we always have to go upriver to find the thing below mm-hmm. the thing, below the thing. And I love this conversation because again, as a marriage therapist, I'm thinking of all the marriage and relationship implications that just these things have. We all want to feel safe. We all want to be seen. We all want to be secure. Of course, not in, uh, not only in our parenting and and soothed, not only in our parenting and parental relationship, but our romantic relationships Mm -hmm. too, and our friendships as well. So I love all this stuff. I really want to be respectful of your time, Tina, um, for anything that you want anybody to know, where can they find it? Where can they go? I am at tinabryson.com and I'm all over social media too. And usually my handle there is Tina Payne Bryson. Um, I want to say just one more thing based on what you just said. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, one of my favorite things to tell parents is what your kids need most from you is you. Mm-hmm. Flawed you, imperfect you. And what I said earlier, you matter too. And our attachment needs are throughout our whole entire life. Mm-hmm. And so we can't give our kids the experience of feeling safe, seen, soothed, and secure if we don't show up for ourselves and have other people who show up for us. I need people who help me feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, much of the time that's my awesome husband. And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's my best friend or my mom or time by myself, helping showing up for myself. And so I'm so glad you got to that point because I think that's so important too. When we are, we can't give it to our kids if we're not having that in our own lives as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I, We'll ask this last question. And for some reason, canoe racing always comes up. You're like, Seth, what are you talking about? But what is the thing that's just giving you the jazz right now? Like, I don't care if it's canoe racing or <laughs> Ru- Rubik's Cube building. What? what What are you super into right now? I always think that's fun. Um, so during COVID, my a group of four couples, our best friends, didn't have other obligations, no ball games, no social events. And we had dinner every Saturday night together, we rotated houses and we're still trying to hold on to it. So Mm. every Saturday night, a delicious dinner with a cocktail. And now we've just added pickleball into the mix. And I played for the first time yesterday. And it's my new life mission is to become (laughs) a pickleball world champion. So it looks so much fun. I take the kids to the park and there's like a basketball court, but then on Saturdays or something, there's like two pickleball courts. And I'm like, those guys are out there just whacking that thing. I'm like, that looks so Is fun. It like giant but I've never pong? played. I've never it's even played like like, tennis. It's like tennis for old people. Like anyone <laughs> can play any skill level, you know, whatever. I played high right. school tennis, but I haven't played since high school. Right. And I'll admit I'm a little sore today, but um it was so fun. So it's it's making me really excited right now. And awesome. I'm always always my ever faithful dodge i'm a dodger fan so i always love love baseball season that's always fun right now there's almost always a game on so nice yeah that is so fun i could listen to you talk i know literally forever you and dan siegel are like my i just could do this all day long so thank you so much for being on the show we would love to also have you back to talk about more parenting things and again, go to her website, Tina, Tina, Tina Payne Bryson is your Instagram handles and stuff. But then the website, tinabryson.com, right? Tinabryson.com. Yeah. So and good. Thank you so much for all the wonderful work you're doing. It's so fun to partner with people who are helping people be kinder to themselves and be more intentional about their relationship. So thank you for all the work you're doing in the world. Absolutely. It's been super fun. So thank you thank so much. Thank you. We'll connect again. That's right. right. Have a good one. 